Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we have clinical conversations that impact your pharmacy practice. Pharmacists by Design members get 30 minutes of CE just for listening to this podcast and answering a couple of questions. Join Pharmacists by Design today and make getting CE easier. Today's podcast is brought to you by Ananda Professional, the number one pharmacist-recommended CBD brand. Let's listen in as our team discusses this week's clinical practice game changer. Hello and welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Uh, thanks for joining us. So today we're going to talk about chronic liver disease and cirrhosis. There was an excellent uh, review of this, uh, summary review of this just recently in uh, JAMA in the first part of May. And this is an area of medicine I deal with all the time, uh, being uh, working in patient internal medicine. I see this quite a bit. And I've noticed that there's really been some, some big changes as far as treatment. So I thought it would, wouldn't be a bad idea to just kind of do a quick update on uh, treatment of cirrhosis and complications, and also with a focus on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, and the reason I thought that might not be a bad idea to focus on is that uh, it is the fastest growing cause of chronic liver disease and cirrhosis. And in fact, I believe it is now past chronic alcoholism is, is the number one cause of cirrhosis. And the other thing is that we're poised to come up with some new medications in the next year or so. There's been a couple of big studies that have looked at medications that slow or stop the progression of fibrosis into cirrhosis and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And uh, because these patients often present when they're much younger than alcoholism, um, I think it's worth kind of discussing. So that's why we kind of thought this would be a, not a bad idea to kind of review. It is the seventh leading cause of death is chronic liver disease and cirrhosis. And the incidence is actually rising. There is a VA study that came out that found an increase in, in the incidence. Now, of course, this is in veterans. So you got to kind of keep that in mind. But overall, it seems that the incidence of, of chronic liver disease is going up, probably again, because of this uh, uh, increased uh, incidence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So, and of course that's, that's a direct result of, of the obesity epidemic, as we all know. So this is something that is, is common, is becoming more common. And something I tend, sometimes I tend to forget some of the mortality and hospitalization issues associated with chronic liver disease are very high. And I, you know, I, I, we kind of sometimes forget about that until patients are at the end stage of, of their liver disease. And in fact, I think there's a lot of things we can do to help them uh, uh, with decreased hospitalization rates and even decreased mortality as, as we talked about. So as far as causes of chronic liver disease and cirrhosis, again, 25% of patients now uh, have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease related to, to their cirrhosis. It's again, catching up with alcohol, uh, which is about 26%, hepatitis C and alcohol, 17%, and then just hepatitis C by itself is 24%, and then basically everything else after that. So bottom line is that it's alcohol, hepatitis C, and and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease are the most common causes. Um, and as I mentioned, that it's much more common now in younger patients, especially with, with NASH or non, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease uh, that you're going to see. So, you know, the pathophysiology, I won't spend a lot of time on because again, I think most listeners have that kind of down pat, but, you know, keep in mind that, you know, over time, whether it's alcohol or fat from fatty liver disease, uh, you get infiltration of fat into the, into the areas of the, of the liver where uh, blood flow occurs, that infiltration eventually gets trans, transferred into fibrosis and so 
muscle, that the area where the fat infiltrates becomes fibrotic, that uh, increases pressure or intrahepatic pressure, which, which uh, leads to portal hypertension, which is responsible for a lot of the, the issues associated with chronic liver disease. Also, you get actual destruction of hepatocytes as that fibrotic tissue basically, you know, is spread and takes over the liver. And eventually that fibrotic tissue turns into what a GI doctor once told me is essentially a rock in the middle of your gut. Uh, and that's what, that's what a lot, uh, what cirrhosis occurs basically. As far as the, the complications of cirrhosis, there's some of the big ones include hepatic encephalopathy, which is, is pretty common and, and actually has, has a, there's a 40% five-year risk in patients who have chronic liver disease of developing hepatic encephalopathy, ascites, which is again, another 40% lifetime risk among patients with cirrhosis, uh, uh, variceal bleeding or other GI bleeding, about 9% uh, of patients per year in patients who have cirrhosis, hepatocellular carcinoma, uh, which is much more common in uh, hepatitis C rel uh, related cirrhosis, but can happen, happen in others as well. And uh, that's anywhere from, from 1.4 to 3.2%. Uh, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, which is about 11% annual risk in patients with ascites, and hepatorenal syndrome, which is about an 8% annual risk with patients with ascites. So bottom line is, is that patients with cirrhosis and chronic liver disease are at risk for all sorts of complications. And they're associated with, with significantly increased mortality. Patients with severe hepatic cephalopathy actually have a median survival of only about uh, 2.5 years. Uh, patients with variceal bleeding have a 17.76 week mortality risk after the bleed uh, in incident occurs. And hepatocellular carcinoma has a very dismal prognosis, less than 20% of people survive at five, uh, five years. And the most dreaded of all these, of course, is hepatorenal syndrome, uh, which has a mortality approaching 100% in these patients. So again, it's, you know, there's a huge burden of mortality and hospitalization in, in these patients. And uh, we should really kind of uh, take a look at what we can do to, to prevent and treat the issues what we're, what we're going to have time. So diagnosis of cirrhosis without a liver biopsy um, is something that that has made some big changes in the last 10 or 15 years. Now, now certainly if, if, if someone has uh, some of the manifestations of chronic liver disease, you know, ascites, stuff like that, it's, it's a little bit easier to diagnose, but in someone in the early stages of cirrhosis, it might, it might be more difficult. And so what this review article discusses, I think in, in nice detail is, is, is some of the uh, diagnoses, diagnostic tests you can use to help diagnose both portal hypertension as well as fibrosis. And of course, portal hypertension is the is a pressure gradient between the hepatic and portal vein of at least 10 millimeters of mercury or greater. And of course, as we know, this high level of pressure gets transmitted backwards to the GI tract, which promotes development of varices and uh, also uh, decreases blood flow to the kidneys and, and increases renal tubular affinity for sodium, so it causes hyponatremia and, and again, kidney vasoconstriction, which predisposes the patient to, again, acute kidney injury, ascites, all this other stuff. Um, there's other symptoms they talk about that I often don't think about, maybe because patients don't complain about them when they're admitted with cirrhosis, but things like muscle cramps, which are actually reported in 64% of patients with, uh, with uh, chronic liver disease. And I, I was kind of unaware of that. And uh, itching is very common as well, about 40% of patients. And then other uh, common issues include uh, uh, insomnia and sexual dysfunction. So I thought that was, that was kind of interesting. Again, those are not usually things that, that I deal with as far as an inpatient is concerned. So then the guidelines discuss a little bit about, okay, so you, know, you suspect the patient has signs of cirrhosis 
or they have risk factors of cirrhosis. Again, they have known alcoholic use disorder. They have known uh, severe obesity or history of hepatitis B and C. How do you uh, make the diagnosis of cirrhosis if we're not going to do a liver biopsy in these patients? And again, in most patients, you know, liver biopsy is uh, has a risk associated with it, and it's probably unnecessary in most patients. So, the this review article discusses the uh, fibrosis four index score or Fib four score, uh, which is easily uh, calculated on any of of there's like you know MD Calc and a lot of these other websites that you can calculate it. It's kind of a complex calculation. It's easy to get the 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 data for it, but the calculation itself is the AST multiplied by the age divided by the platelet count, then multiplied by the square root of the ALT. So kind of <laughs> going back to your algebra, right? So AST uh, multiplied by age, divided by platelets, and then multiplied by the square root of the ALT. Now, if that uh, FIB score is uh, greater than 1.3 at age less than 65 or greater than two at, pay, at if patients are age uh, over 65, then they're at a higher risk for developing uh, um, uh, or having fibrosis. And it does have a high negative predictive value, about 96% negative predictive value, uh, but only a low, a relatively low positive predictive value at 60, 63%. So keep that in mind that that, that if, if this number is less than that, you've essentially ruled out fibrosis, but if it's high, you have an absolutely diagnosed uh, fibrosis in the liver. So if, if that's the case, then you move on to determining liver stiffness measurement or LSM. And uh, there's a number of tests now that I, again, as a pharmacist was, was kind of largely unaware of that helps uh, uh, suss the diagnosis of uh, uh, fibrosis. The first is uh, vibration control transient elastography or VCTE. And that's done in patients who have a BMI of less than four. 40. And then if patients have a BMI of over 40, then that BCTE um, it doesn't seem to be nearly as accurate. It's, it's, it's sensitivity and specificity goes down. So if your BMI is over 40, they recommend actually magnetic resonance elastography. I don't know how often this is done, at least in my neck of the woods. Um, and, and uh, you know, on an outpatient basis, I suspect this might be done some, but I've not in an inpatient basis seen either of these tests regularly done. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But bottom line is that if you have a, a high FIB4 score, then you move on to develop liver stiffness measurement. And if the uh, LSM reading is greater than 15 kilopascals on the VCTE or greater than five kilopascals on the magnetic resonance elastography, uh, that pretty much, again, is it, it gives you a highly suggestive uh, um, result for, for our highest level of certainty for the diagnosis of fibrosis. Hey, if that's the case, then uh, you just go ahead and start uh, initiate evidence-based care, which we're going to talk about in a second. If the scores are kind of indeterminate, so for example, if you have a FIB4 score that's relatively low, but have a high LSM, those are the patients that you would consider going on to liver biopsy. And then if, uh, if cirrhosis is unlikely, you have a low LSM and a low FIB4 score, then basically trying to prevent development of uh, liver disease. So example, for example, someone with alcohol use disorder, considering getting them into a program to stop, considering naltrexone, which is now first line uh, recommended for, for prevent, uh, treatment of alcohol use disorder. And if they have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, largely considering um, uh, a treatment of that or prevention of that by helping them to lose weight. There's a lot of debate going on right now about is, is having a significant uh, NASH or non-alcoholic fatal liver disease worth putting patients either on medications that help them lose weight, again, such as the, the GLP drugs, or even perhaps weight loss surgery might be enough of, of, of a problem that, that indicates that they should be on these medications. So and I think we'll get a lot of information on that as, as kind of time goes on. So the other thing they recommend is in their evidence-based care is to screen these patients annually 
uh, for the development of liver cancer. Obviously, the earlier you, you catch uh, hepatocellular carcinoma in these patients, the better they're going to do. So they recommend an annual screen with uh, or, uh, or a biannual screen with ultrasound and alpha fetoprotein. Uh, and if those are suggestive of, of that, then obviously, you know, get those guys in, into assessment and treatment as, as quickly as you can. It is worth noting that if the patient starts to develop the complications of chronic liver disease, they should be considered for transplant. And uh, that's a whole subject that goes beyond what we're talking about today. But it is certainly true that the rules for who qualifies for transplant, depending on the center, is changing some. And so, again, I was always kind of taught that that patients, for example, of alcohol use disorder, um, if they uh, if they have to be absent for at least six months before they can even be put on the transplant list, that is changing in some centers where that isn't quite necessary. So, again, wherever you practice, make sure you know the transplant center that you're working with and make sure you know their, their criteria for, for evaluation. Um, my guess is some of these patients get missed or don't get put on the transplant list because we're not exactly sure what the, what the center that's doing the transplant is, is considered, you know, okay, or, or an indication for that. So kind of keep that in mind. And then uh, in, in all these other patients, uh, you don't want to screen for varices with endoscopy uh, if they have a high degree of certainty of uh, cirrhosis or fibrosis, um, especially if their v VCTE result is, is less than 20 and their platelet count uh, is, is greater than 150, you can defer. But if they have a high VCTE count, so over 20 or a low platelet count, actually low platelets have actually been shown to be a, a fairly good screening tool for the development of esophageal varices. So, so uh, endoscopy would, would be indicated. And obviously, if they have developing varices to, to maybe ban those or treat those before they burst and initiate non-selective beta blockers, which we're going to talk about here in just a second. So, you know, again, a number of, uh, I think, in-depth evidence-based um, uh, assessment tools can be used. And <clears throat> to my knowledge, I, I suspect a lot of these patients don't get that. I think you have, if you have a dedicated GI physician or group or hepatology group, I think like, they're obviously all over this. But if you're in a smaller place or smaller town where they not, may not necessarily have that level of, of coverage of subspecialists, my guess is a lot of primary care physicians and, and, and providers may do a lot of this. And, and again, understanding that, you know, it's easy to kind of do a FIB4 score. You may have to refer them for looking at, at liver stiffness measurement testing, but I think you can do a pretty good job of at least trying to get a, a assessment of, of the relative certainty of that diagnosis. And you can certainly initiate evidence-based care in these patients, which again may include, include treatment of alcohol use disorder or weight loss measurements and stuff like that. So, so that's kind of, you know, a nice background of, of, of diagnosis of chronic liver disease. And then the, the review article discusses some of the treatment of complications that we've kind of talked about. We're going to talk about all that and some of the treatments that you may or may not be aware of uh, for cirrhosis right after this message from CE Impact. Guess what? While states were figuring out who could sell CBD, the marketplace was flooded with CBD pop-ups staffed with people who didn't understand the products and how they worked. Now it's time for pharmacy to take back control by establishing ourselves as the drug therapy expert. Our friends at Ananda Professional are here to help you do that. As the number one pharmacist-recommended CBD brand, their holistic approach to cannabinoid empowers pharmacists to help patients live a healthier, happier life, free of pain, anxiety, and sleeplessness. Ananda Professional is the number one CBD brand at over 4,000 independent pharmacies. As a pharmacist, you can learn more for free by checking out the CBD Academy on the CE Impact app. Search CE Impact in your app store, then join the CBD Academy within the app. Here, you'll find education and resources so you can help your patients choose the best CBD product to live a happier, healthier life. 
So we are talking today about a, a review of the treatment of cirrhosis and diagnosis of cirrhosis, kind of triggered by, again, an excellent uh, review summary that was just published in early May in JAMA. Uh, if you uh, will we'll have a link to that in the show notes, and, and certainly if you want to take a look at that, I think it's, it's a nice review. It's got some nice charts on it that can really help, uh, especially the primary care provider, kind of walk through uh, with these patients and, and, and when to refer them, when not to, and some of the treatments that you can talk about, which is we're going to talk about now. So we talked earlier that that muscle cramps are actually very common. And again, something that, that I don't see a lot in an inpatient setting, but uh, over 60% of patients uh, uh, complain of. And in a small randomized control trial of 80 patients compared with tap water, one sip of pickle brine at cramp onset significantly reduced cramp severity at 28-day follow-up. Um, and it was a 2.3 versus 0.4 reduction on a 10-point visual analog scale. So again, I, I think that would probably uh, be considered clinically significant. I had heard this kind of in, in you know, through the grapevine that people were using uh, a pickle juice or pickle brine uh, to treat uh, muscle cramps for this and, and a, a couple some, several other causes of, of that as well. So again, I was kind of unaware of that. Uh, I don't think that's probably enough sodium to worry about fluid retention in these patients with something you have to think about. Um, I'm, I'm sure it probably doesn't taste all that swell. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I suppose if, if you're having really bad muscle cramps, you'll try a lot of stuff. And so I think it's reasonable to recommend a simp, uh, sip of pickle brine in patients who are complaining of, of muscle cramps. Uh, interesting, um, also tarring, which you can get over the counter. There was a small double uh, two-week randomized double-blind study that looked at 30 patients and compared to a placebo and found that uh, one gram of tarring twice daily significantly reduced leg cramping as well. However, the effect size was smaller than pickle juice, but that's something to consider. And again, it's, it's cheap and over the counter, which is kind of nice. I mentioned that itching is pretty common. And for many, many years, we've used a cholestyramine as a, because it's a bile acid sequestrant to help basically absorb some of the bile in the skin that is causing the uh, uh, itching sensation. Uh, that's what they recommend here too, though they note that there are no randomized controlled trials you know, looking at that. Uh, also now Trexone has been shown in a couple of small studies, less than 20 patients really, that it improves pruritus as well. Uh, again, the effect size is relatively small um, with, with naltrexone, but it's certainly reasonable to try if they can afford it and, and they've already been on cholestyramine or they don't tolerate it. So some interesting treatments for some of the, some of the lesser known complications of, of cirrhosis. As I mentioned before, non-selective uh, beta blockers and the three that I was always taught was carvedilol, propranolol, and natalol. And frankly, I used to recommend natalol quite a bit uh, because it's renally cleared and always made sense to me, you know, if we're going to put someone with liver disease on a beta blocker, shouldn't we put them on a renally cleared beta blocker, and, and which was natalol. Unfortunately, we've had to kind of go away from that because Natalol's price has just absolutely skyrocketed. It's hundreds of dollars a month now. So unfortunately, we've, we've had to kind of go away from that. And so we're, we're, we're using more Carvedilol in this case. And the guidelines actually, actually recommend that, which I thought was kind of interesting. So beta blockers work by decreasing portal pressures uh, they, because they reduce splanchic blood flow. They note that we have several large studies that suggest that, that people who have known large varices or prior bleeding from varices, that beta blockers have been shown to improve outcomes um, pretty much across the board. Interestingly, uh, European guidelines do actually call it Carvedilol and say it's preferred to other beta blockers with level B evidence and a strong recommendation. That's based on a randomized control trial of about 150 patients uh, who had uh, band ligation of, of, uh, of varices. They found that patients who were randomized uh, to Carvedilol had lower rates of variceal bleeding, 10 versus 23% after 20 months of follow-up. And so 
probably one of the larger studies we have with non-selected beta blockers. So I'm going to probably start recommending carvedilol, I think, mostly in these patients. So, you know, so that's something to kind of keep in mind as, as you're thinking about what non-selected beta blockers. Now, there's also some data that suggests that as patients' renal function starts to decline, that beta blockers should be, should be held. It seems like there's a window at which a, a non-selected beta blockers seem to be most beneficial. And so it is something to consider that if patients start, are starting to develop acute kidney injury, that non-selected beta blockers should probably be held and, and probably not restarted again unless the renal function recovers. We see a lot of variceal bleeds in these patients, and it, it, it can be devastating and, and catastrophic when it occurs. They note that variceal bleeding is usually treated with band ligation uh, during timely endoscopy. And they also note that octreotide, and this is pretty much standard of care, is associated with higher rates of hemostasis at five days. And that also prophylactic antibiotics, and we tend to use at least five days of ceftriaxone in, in my hospital, has also been shown to, to, to improve outcomes as well. So when someone comes in with a variceal bleed, you know, it's pretty standard to put them, give them fluids, get them to endoscopy, uh, start uh, ceftriaxone and start octreotide. A lot of times I see people on, on combination octreotide and, and pantoprazole or other proton pump inhibitor trips. Keep in mind, that's not necessary. And the guidelines do point that out, that octreotide does a very, very good job of stopping gastric acid production uh, because it's kind of the off switch of, of the GI tract. So there's really no need at all to be on, on proton pump inhibitors when you're on an octreotide trip. However, you know, if, if you absolutely insist, I would say that BID dosing is, is really all you need. And you certainly don't need a continuous infusion of proton pump inhibitors in these patients. They also note that, that, uh, that the TIPS procedure, transjugular intrahepatic uh, portal systemic uh, shunt procedures uh, in patients who have had variceal bleeds has been shown to improve one-year survival but it also had, comes at the cost of increased hepatic encephalopathy. And it's interesting because TIPS, I, I don't think we, we realize that TIPS is often associated with, with improved mortality. We know that it decreases instances of ascites in patients, but I, I thought that was interesting that, that there's some evidence suggesting that it also improves survival. Ascites, of course, is a, is a huge issue with these patients, and many of them will get repeated paracentesis in those patients, uh, even when you're trying to optimize diuretic dosing, and we usually use the combination of loop diuretics and, and spironolactic on these patients. Uh, it does note that, you, that if you're having multiple of the multiple procedures, you should refer these patients for tips. Um, they found in a meta-analysis of, of 305 patients compared uh, treatment with, without, with and without TIPS, uh, TIPS pa uh, patients were associated with a reduced risk of recurrent ascites, 42% versus 89%. And again, I did something I wasn't aware of, a reduced two-year mortality of 51% versus 65%. But again, the price you always pay for that is the increased risk of hepatic cephalopathy, which they noticed was about twice as high in patients who had the TIPS procedure versus those who, who, who did not. Um, and they noticed that uh, risk of, of complications with TIPS also rises with increased age and uh, worsening liver function, basically. Hepatal renal syndrome is a diagnosis largely of exclusion. And again, the, you could do an entire podcast on the, on the diagnosis and treatment of HRS. The, the, it is worth noting that just recently, terlipressin was approved in the United States uh, for uh, HRS. is actually the first drug that's actually FDA approved for HRS. They note that in a large study, terlipressin improved kidney function in patients who had a, a decrease of creatinine. It was 39% versus 18%, but it was also associated with the increased risk of death due to respiratory failure, 11% versus 
2%. Um, they also note that norepinephrine has been shown to be beneficial and maybe non-inferior turlopressin as well. Uh, from the cost perspective in the United States, turlopressin is, is unbelievably expensive, usually in the fifty dollars to $70,000 range. So I do wonder how much turlopressin is actually going to be used in the U.S., uh, just given the cost factors associated with it. Um, uh, uh, hepatic cephalopathy, very, very common in these patients. Uh, as we all know, lactulose is the treatment of choice. And again, I was unaware that lactulose not only improves symptoms of hepatic cephalopathy, but uh, meta-analysis found that it's associated with reduced mortality, 8.5% versus 14%. And again, I was largely unaware of, of the, the, the association with reduced mortality. Um, as everyone knows, lactulose smells and tastes terrible, and people really don't are, aren't interested in having to go to the bathroom a million times. So, so adherence is always an issue. Interestingly, a paper uh, last year came out that looked at not only how many bowel movements you're having, but also, frankly, the type of bowel movements, whether it's kind of, you know, mushy versus really, you know, solid. I hope no one's eating while they're listening to this podcast. I apologize if you are. And found that, again, the looser the stool, shall we say, uh, that was associated with improved symptoms of hepatic cephalopathy. So kind of interesting, you know. And then, you know, the the review article talks about NASH, and there's some other studies recently that, that talk about NASH and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Again, they all note that, that it, obesity is the number one uh, cause of this. And they all stress that, that weight loss is, is the primary way to prevent and treat um, NASH at this point. And really only it takes is a weight loss of about 5% of body weight to improve the fat deposits in the liver. And uh, they note that about 10% weight loss, you can actually decrease uh, the development of fibrosis even. So again, you know, that's not easy to do, I realize, but it doesn't take, you know, 20, 30% weight loss to actually find improvement in uh, looking at the liver and the development of fibrosis and cirrhosis. So I think that's kind of interesting. Um, there's a lot of controversy and discussion now, as I said before, about using pharmacologic treatments uh, to, to induce weight loss. Now we of course have you know, several uh, uh, drugs, again, primarily the GOP-1 drugs that are associated with significant weight loss. In some of those studies, they did actually look at development of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or they looked at, at the, five, the FIB-4 score, and they actually found improvements in some of those studies. The, the question is, is having the diagnosis of either of these enough to uh, put patients on uh, uh, weight loss medications um, or weight loss surgery. Uh, current evidence suggests that, that the standard use of bariatric surgery should not be done in these patients, but one wonders, uh, again, you know, bariatric surgery has a number of, of, of uh, complications associated with it. It is worth noting that, you know, as we get more and more of these drugs that are effective for weight loss, um, it'll be very interesting to see if, if insurance companies will even be willing to pay for uh, oh, these weight loss medications and somebody who may not have a lot of, they may not have diabetes, they may not have hypertension, but they may ha only have a non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and that would be enough to put them on the medication. So I think it's kind of interesting. It'll be interesting to see where we, where we go with that. One of the questions I get often is, you know, can these patients be on statins? Because of course, all of them are at high cardiovascular morbid morbidity and mortality. Um, and, the, and the evidence is clear on this, that yes, statins can be used in patients uh, um, who, uh, who have uh, NASH or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, 
Um, there is some retrospective data that suggests that it may even be beneficial in those patients. So uh, I think you just watch their liver function tests and make sure that they don't rise significantly. And if they develop decompensated cirrhosis and, and have to be hospitalized, you probably want to hold statins during that period. But other than that, yes, statins are completely safe in these patients and may actually be beneficial. So don't withhold statins in those patients as it were. And of course, you want to aggressively treat all the other uh, comorbid conditions that many of these patients have, again, like diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, things along those lines. Are there any actual treatments once somebody's developed uh, NASH or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? Uh, yes, the guidelines note that, that uh, pioglitazone has been shown to improve liver histology in patients uh, with and without type 2 diabetes and biopsy-proven uh, fatty liver disease. Uh, so it, it may be used to treat these patients. So I haven't seen a lot of pioglitazone used for this, but the guidelines say it's something to consider. Um, and uh, obviously, you'd want to take a look at the indications and risks and benefits because, again, these aren't safe medications. And interestingly, vitamin E has been shown uh, at 800 units a day to improve liver histology in non-diabetic patients with biopsy-proven fatty liver disease and should be considered for this population. I think that that's certainly uh, uh, reasonable to do. Uh, interestingly, the study that, that got that improved uh, actually excluded patients with diabetes, unfortunately. So uh, that's, uh, you probably would, uh, I don't think it would hurt to give them vitamin E, but the data we have mostly is in uh, uh, biopsy proven NASH without diabetes. So, you know, again, is 800 units of vitamin E going to hurt anybody? Probably not, but uh, that where it, is that where it seems to have the most benefit. And again, later uh, on this year, next year, we have at least two drugs that are uh, finishing phase three studies that will also look at improving liver histology as well as progression to uh, complications of cirrhosis. I have no doubt they're going to be quite expensive, but I think it's it's worth uh, noting that we might actually have some uh, more arrows in our quiver to actually treat NASH. And so I think, you know, prevention, uh, we'll see if GLP-1 drugs play a role there. And then once someone develops that, one wonders if the combination of some of these new medications, and again, perhaps vitamin E or pioclitazone may be beneficial as well. So that's kind of the summary of, of, of cirrhosis. Um, again, I, I encourage you to check out the, the JAMA review article, really, really nice. And if you're treating these patients, kind of keep a lot of these things in mind, because I think we tend to tend to kind of, especially an alcohol use disorder, kind of shrug our shoulders a lot of times and say, well, you know, we've done everything we can, they won't quit drinking, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we need to be a little more aggressive in these patients and keep asking them, you know, are, you know, are you in a place where you're ready to try quitting? We have several medications that are effective. There are several uh, programs uh, that, that can help you stay off alcohol and prevent things from getting worse and obese patients really being aggressive now that we have good tools to help them lose weight. I think we need to be a little more aggressive about both. So that's it for this week of Game Changers. Again, thanks for listening. Do want to do a little shameless plug? As many of you know, I produce uh, electronic music, usually house music under the name Prophet of Jupiter. And I am fortunate enough to have a new EP coming out called Trepanon. And it's on Cafe de Antolia Records. And it will be coming out uh, here in a couple of weeks. And it'll be on all platforms, Spotify, uh, SoundCloud, et cetera, et cetera. So if you like house music, uh, check it out and see what you think. Uh, we will see you next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. We'll see you next week. Jen here. You can find all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast player by searching CE Impact. Click follow so you don't miss any episodes of Level Up, Game Changers, or Precept to Practice. Be sure to check the show notes for links you heard about during this episode. You can also find our education at ceimpact.com. When you join by design, you'll have access to all of our great content and you can get CE for this episode. And last, don't forget to join the CBD Academy on the CE Impact app. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week on Game Changers Clinical Conversations.